Revelation. We're continuing our series. This morning we come to uh, Revelation 13, beginning at verse 11 to the end of the chapter. I'm sure I'm not alone in uh, this experience. I was spending a few minutes uh, watching a little bit of news, actually, on YouTube, and then something, uh, a video on the sidebar caught my attention. Anyone ever have that experience and you kind of get sucked into the black hole that is YouTube? Um, one particular video that I saw there caught my attention and I watched it. It was just a short video. It was a, about a father playing a practical joke on his two daughters. I would guess his daughters were maybe uh, junior high, high school, uh, the older one, and the younger one maybe a junior high or, or close to the end of elementary school. He, uh, perhaps some of you have seen this, he sent his daughters into an auto supply store uh, to ask for um, a, a, a jug of blinker fluid and a bucket of steam. Uh, so the video shows these girls coming out laughing and a little bit embarrassed and scolding their father, uh, talking about how embarrassed they were, I can't believe you did that, but trying really hard not to laugh, realizing that this was a funny joke that their father had pulled on them. Um, obviously, there's no such thing as blinker fluid, but they even tried, uh, the father had gone to some lengths, he'd even, he'd even made a coupon for them. So when, when the staff said, no, someone's joking with you, they said, no, 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 we even have a coupon. Um, and, and everyone laughed at them, and these girls uh, laughed at themselves and what their dad did. It actually reminds me of an experience I had in my own life. When I began doing construction many years ago, uh, my, my foreman, my, who was my uncle, um, when I cut some two-by-fours too short, he sent me to find a board stretcher. Now, I realize, I think, in my defense, I, I didn't go for it. But uh, moments like that can simply be moments of, of, of good-natured fun. They can bless our hearts with laughter for all involved. Certainly, watching that video with his father and his two daughters, it was, it was pretty neat to see just the laughter and joy that you could tell all three of them were experiencing in that moment. Uh, that said, deception generally is not merely a matter of innocent fun. It's not a laughing matter. Generally, it is far more sinister, and such is the case in the text that we come to in Revelation today. This morning, we are introduced to uh, a second beast. We met the first beast, the beast out of the sea, last week. This morning, we encounter a second beast, a beast out of the earth, who uh, aims to deceive humanity and lead, uh, lead uh, pressure the church into compromise. Before we turn to it and read it, let me just remind you of a few things. We have been making our way through this, the final book of the New Testament and of the Bible as a whole, the, the revelation, the apocalypse, the unveiling. In these pages, Jesus pulls back the curtain. He lifts off the cover so that we can see what is really real, uh, so that we can see that, that things are not as they appear. There's more going on than we can take in with our physical eyes. In these pages, Jesus enables us to see the present in light of the unseen realities of the future, and he allows us to see the present in light of the unseen realities of the present. There is more going on than meets the eye. Two weeks ago, we came to the, uh, Revelation chapter 12, which I said was the theological center of the book. Uh, in it, Jesus gives John yet another vision, uh, a vision that helps him see what's happening in the world, a vision that helps answer the question, why do those who follow Jesus, why do the disciples of Jesus 
uh, suffer and face such opposition uh, if Christ has indeed won the victory. In Revelation 12, John looks and he sees. He, he sees first a woman who is dressed in the sun, standing in the moon with a crown of 12 stars. She represents the people of God. She's pregnant, about to give birth. John looks and he sees another sign, an enormous red dragon poised in front of the woman, ready to devour the child the moment that child is born. John looks and he sees a third character, this time not a sign. The woman was a sign pointing to a reality behind it. The dragon was a sign pointing to a reality behind it, but the son is indeed reality himself. The son born of this woman is Jesus, the Messiah, the rescuer. And just as the dragon is ready to devour him, he is snatched up to heaven. And in that moment, we, we have the, the incarnation, Christ's birth, his life, his ministry, his death, resurrection, and ascension caught up to heaven. The, the dragon failed in his desire to destroy the offspring of this woman, the seed of the woman, Jesus. And he's filled with rage and wants to make war against the offspring of the woman, that is, the church, believers, disciples of Jesus. Chapter 12 concludes with the, the, the dragon set on waging war against the believers, against disciples of Jesus. What we discovered last week when we turned to chapter 13 is that chapter 13 continues the drama that began in chapter 12. The dragon, filled with fury, is standing on the shore, uh, ready to wage war against God's people. But we also discover that the dragon does not wage war directly. But he wages war through two agents. We met the first last week, the beast that came up out of the sea. This morning we meet the second agent, the beast that comes out of the earth. The beast that came out of the sea, we saw last week through our study, that that first beast represented political power that has come out from under God, unhooked from, divorced from God, the one who sits upon the throne that is above every other throne. That is, uh, it is political power seeking to usurp the place of God, demanding the allegiance of its citizens, pretending to be God. It is dragon-manipulated political power, is how Daryl Johnson puts it. This morning we encounter, we are introduced to the second beast, the second agent that the dragon enlists in his battle, his war against the people of God. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along as we read Verses 11 to the end of chapter 13. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. I want to do four things with you in our time 
together this morning. First, I want to uh, talk a little bit about our interpretive approach to uh, the Revelation as a whole and this material specifically. Second, I want us to uh, figure out the identity of this second beast. Third, in light of that identity, I want to reflect with you on the nature of the threat that Jesus is warning us and warning his disciples about. And fourth, I want to think briefly about the necessary response for us as disciples of Jesus. So first, our interpretive approach to this material. I have been contending throughout, and I continue to maintain that, that the revelation is not a crystal ball that aims to provide us with a play-by-play-by-play -play -play of the future now. Rather, the revelation is a discipleship manual. God has given this revelation to the church, to his people, to lead them in what it means for them to live faithfully as his followers. They are about to, uh, about to experience a great ordeal, a time of suffering. And so God gives this to his people. Now, before this is God's word to us, we need to understand it as God's word to the first recipients, those who received it and heard it first, believers living at the end of the first century in the Roman province of Asia. They are about to face far greater suffering than they have even experienced to this point. Jesus' message to those believers was aimed to prepare them, to warn them about the difficult ordeal that they were about to go through. Rome, the Roman Empire is at the height of its power and is about to unleash horrific suffering upon those who are faithful to Jesus. That is what we've seen in the Revelation thus far. And what we specifically saw over the last two weeks, chapter 12, the dragon, Satan, explicitly identified as Satan, who is... Uh, filled with rage towards God and is now taking that out on those who follow God, the descendants of the woman who represents God's people. Satan is filled with rage, intent on wreaking havoc, bringing destruction and pain on those who follow Jesus. Chapter 13, verses 1 to 10, the text we looked at last week, we encountered the dragon's first agent, the beast out of the sea, who will wage war against God's people on behalf of the dragon. And in the text, verse 7 says, will conquer them. Remember verse 10, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword they will be killed. John, or Jesus through John, is warning the church in the province of Asia that they are about to suffer that some of them will be brought into captivity, that some of them will be put to death by the sword. He is seeking to prepare them and encourage them and warn them in the face of what is about to come. Now we need to understand that, that that is the original context, that it is first a word to them. And from there we read it and seek to understand God's word to us. Now I want to contend humbly that there is a great deal that is said and taught about the revelation that I believe is wrong-headed. I certainly don't have all the answers. I don't have the last word on this book. I very well may get some of this interpretation wrong, particularly in, in the details. There are a number of things that is simply a matter of guesswork. But there are two things that I will argue for with some degree of energy. First, the main point, the main message, the thrust of this book as a whole is quite clear. Though we may not be able to grasp and work out all the particular details, the overall message is clear. It is a, a, a document, a discipleship manual aimed to prepare God's people 
to face suffering, to remain faithful. It is a document that warns. Remember the letters to the seven churches. There are warnings and rebukes of what is wrong and a calling to faithfulness and and a warning about what they're about to face, calling them to endure faithfully. That much is clear. We say that with utter confidence. Second, I want to say this. The original hearers, the original readers of this text would have understood what John said. Now, that we need to bear in mind. So as we read it, we need to recognize that that John was first, Jesus was first addressing this to those first century believers living in the province of Asia. So what that means is that some of the texts uh, that we read, we need to be very careful that we understand what they would have understood first. For example... I remember years ago, I think I was in college, I heard someone speaking about the chapter 9. The, remember the locusts, the militarized locusts coming thundering? And I remember hearing this explanation that that was a reference to Apache gunships in Desert Storm. I want to contend that's not what it's talking about. The, the first readers of this would never have, have understood that. In fact, if you remember back in chapter 9, when we walked through that, the description of those militarized locusts uh, resembled in many ways the the barbarian hordes to the north that Rome was afraid of. And so uh, God used this imagery uh, in in that point, but we need to understand how they would have received it. In in the same way, today we come to uh, the number of the beast, 666, probably the most famous part of the Revelation. And there's all kinds of explanations, and we'll get to that, that that people have tried to offer. One of them is that 666 stands for uh, the late president, Ronald Reagan, um, because Ronald Reagan has three names, Ronald Wilson Reagan, and each name had six letters. I want to contend that that is wrongheaded. We need to read this first as a document, as a revelation from God to believers in the first century. Now, all that said, I do want to say that, uh, and I've said this to you before, when it comes to words of prophecy, there can be a second or, or multiple reference. As in, if I'm standing looking at a mountain, I might only see one mountain peak, and it's entirely possible that that mountain might have a second mountain behind it, and I'm seeing two peaks, but they're blending together, so I only see one. So uh, what God says first to his people in Asia uh, may have other reference in other times and through history. Certainly we're saying that, right? Last week, the the beast out of the sea that represents political power that has come out from under God represents uh, political power. In John's day, uh, he's clearly speaking about the empire of Rome, but but there have been other empires, other nations that have, have played that beast out of the sea role throughout history. So we, we need to hold on to that as well, but we need to understand first that this is a word to these believers. So enough on that. Let's turn to the second thing we wanted to do, and that was to figure out the identity of the second beast. John says in verse 11, then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. The first beast came out of the sea. The second one comes out of the earth. And this likely, this would have had behind it the Jewish tradition of, of two great uh, beasts, the behemoth and Leviathan. Leviathan of the water, behemoth was the, the, this beast out of the, out of the earth. This beast coming out of the earth. Now, 
the dragon was explicitly identified within chapter 12 as Satan, as the devil. Uh, the first beast, as we walked through the first part of chapter 13 last week, became clear that that is a reference to political power unhooked from God, in rebellion from God, trying to usurp God's place. Uh, I mentioned last Sunday that the dragon and the two beasts of chapter 13, in fact, form an unholy trinity, a parody of God, if you will. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here, the dragon has two beasts. So it's dragon and the beast from the sea and beast from the land. And we will see this, that, that Satan in his rebellion against God seeks to parody God, to mimic God, to take the place of God. This unholy trinity. Now here we encounter the second beast. In encountering the second beast, we encounter the third member of this unholy trinity. Most of the description that we encounter in our text is about the activities of this beast, but there's a couple physical descriptions. Let's look at those. First, it is said to have two horns like a lamb. Now, that means visually, as we look at this beast that comes out of the earth, it it is intended to give us the impression of gentleness, of harmlessness. This is just this beast of the earth. It's just a lamb. It, it, it's just a sheep. Who's scared of a sheep? But it's not just a lamb. We read on that this lamb spoke like a dragon. Well, we have encountered a dragon, a dragon who hates God who stands against God, who stood before the people of God, ready to devour the promised Messiah, Jesus. This lamb, this beast that looks like a lamb, that looks harmless, that looks gentle, speaks like a dragon, and that is an important clue. In fact, it's reminiscent, is it not, of Jesus' warning that we find in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. This second beast looks harmless, but he speaks like a dragon. The bulk of what is described here in our text concerns the activities of this second beast. Let's survey those activities quickly. Uh, first, this beast exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf. That is, uh, there is clearly a connection, a relationship. This beast serves the other beast as as Two agents serving the dragon here. Uh, second, this beast makes all the inhabitants of the earth. Remember, that's a, a technical phrase speaking of those who are in rebellion against God, those who refuse to repent, makes all the inhabitants of the earth worship the first beast. Think about this parody, this, uh, this mimicking of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here's uh, the dragon, the first beast, and the second beast. The second beast plays the, the, the third the role of the third member of this unholy trinity. Well, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? The role of the Holy Spirit is to uh, shine uh, shine a, a light on Christ, to, to show us Christ, to lead us as the people of God to worship Christ. Well, that's what this beast does. He seeks to lead all the inhabitants of the earth to worship the beast out of the sea. Third, this beast performed great signs. A couple of things for us just to make note of real quickly. On the one hand, we know that in the ancient world there were various deceptions that were employed in, uh, in pagan religion. One scholar writes this, religious fraud was not unknown in the ancient world. Another scholar says special effects equipment were in fact used to produce speaking and moving statues as well as simulated thunder and lightning in the imperial cult that is in the worship of the emperors in Rome. Now, 
That's on the one hand, we know that that deception was going on. But on the other hand, we also know that Satan, though no match for God when it comes to power, that Satan is a powerful foe, that he has power to produce signs and wonders. Jesus himself said this, For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive. This beast performs great signs to deceive. Fourth, through the great signs, it it succeeds in deceiving the inhabitants of the earth. This beast will have success in leading many to reject and maintain their rejection of God. Fifth, the beast ordered the inhabitants of the earth to set up an image in honor of the first beast. That is, for us, as we think about the original recipients of this, clearly a reference to the cult of the emperor, the worship of emperors, where they would have made statues, idols, essentially, uh, reflecting the image of, of the emperor. So this beast is involved in that. Six, this beast gave breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak, part of the deception. Seventh, the beast caused all who refused to worship the first beast to be killed. This beast enforces worship. You need to worship this first beast, this beast from the sea. You need to worship in its context. You need to worship Rome. You need to worship the empire. You need to worship the emperor. And lastly, the beast forces all people to receive a mark, the mark of the beast on their right hand or on their forehead. This last activity points to the identification of humanity, the inhabitants of the earth, as those who belong to the beast. And for those who do not bear this mark, this mark of the beast, we discover that there are difficult economic consequences that they are not able to buy or sell. Now, I don't know about you, but I have heard plenty of stories, including in the lives of those close to us, connected with us, of occasions where because of their faith in Jesus, they were not able to buy the necessities of life. This is a real experience for believers, and this is Part of what the warning is for the church, for those who follow Jesus faithfully, that without this mark of the beast, there will be consequences. Life will get more difficult. Now, the religious overtones here, as we unpack what is said about the second beast, are obvious. But who or what exactly is the second beast? In trying to answer that, I think we really need to reflect on the historical context in which we, uh, the original recipients, received, lived. They, they lived in the Roman Empire at the height of its power. John was a pastor of at least the church in Ephesus, which is in the province of Asia. He writes this revelation at Christ's commissioning to seven other churches uh, in the province of Asia. We've walked through those letters earlier in our series. Now, we know historically, that the cult of the emperor, the worship of Roman kings, if you will, of their emperors, was particularly strong in the province of Asia. We've, we've already encountered in our walk through those seven letters that, that numerous, a number of those cities, in fact, competed with each other for the right to build temples to Rome or to the various emperors throughout history. Daryl Johnson writes this, The historical fact is that Rome did not need to impose emperor worship on the cities of Asia Minor. City after city competed for the right and privilege to erect temples to Rome and to Caesar Augustus and to subsequent Caesars. In addition, Johnson writes this, Local religious authorities were the strongest advocates of emperor worship. 
Whether they were doing this out of hope of some kind of social gain or out of genuine conviction is not always clear, but the fact is that idolatry of the political realm would not have come about without the support of religious ideological realm. What Johnson is saying is that the civil, civic authorities in these cities, that the religious leaders in the, these cities promoted the worship of emperors. And as he said, was it because they sincerely believed this or were they trying to win favor with the emperor? Certainly their bidding to build temples to the, honor the emperor was a part of gaining favor. But, but what exactly or who exactly is this beast from the earth? Well, clearly in its historical context, it's, it's closely related. It's tied in with the cult of the emperor, the worship of the emperor as Lord and Savior. And for the original recipients of this, that would have been clear. The beast from the sea is political power. The beast from the earth is the imperial cult, this, this false religion, this re- religious ideology that says worship what is not God. Worship the emperor, worship the empire, worship political power. Uh, Michael Wilcock writes this about the second beast. It is concerned with worship, the religious aspect of human life. It is, he says, false religion. Daryl Johnson says if the beast from the sea is dragon-manipulated political powers and institutions, then the beast from the earth is dragon-manipulated religious power and institutions. The political empire. The beast out of the sea seeks to intimidate with power. The, the beast out of the earth goes after people's minds and hearts, after our worship. Uh, let, let's turn on that note to the third thing we wanted to do, and that is to reflect on the nature of the threat. Robert Mounts calls this beast, the second beast out of the sea, he calls it a minister of propaganda. Very fitting title. In fact, as we read on in Revelation, we are going to encounter the language of false prophet in the text. And what will become clear is that the false prophet actually is another title for this beast, the second beast. So a minister of propaganda, that is, a one who lies, one who deceives, one who speaks what is not true, is clearly uh, at the heart of this beast's role. It aims to deceive humanity, to deflect our worship from God to this unholy trinity. Don't worship God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Worship the dragon and the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. Seeking to lead humanity astray, seeking to lead the church into compromise, to worship the beast, the dragon, to worship anything other than the living God, ultimately. See, what we need to understand, just the foundational point here, is, is that as human beings, we are worshipers. We all are worshipers, whether we recognize that or not, whether you are in the church or you're not in the church. We were created to worship. We were created uh, as worshipers. And so we all worship someone or something. We all look to someone or something for our ultimate joy, for our ultimate fulfillment. And unless we worship the God who made us to know Him and love Him and, and, and live in relationship with Him, we are loving, worshiping, pursuing false gods. That is, at the heart, our problem as human beings, idolatry, worshiping created things as if they're ultimate things. And unless we come to God who has made us to know Him, to love Him, we will find ourselves 
spiritually bankrupt. Now, in their historical context, these disciples of Jesus who first received this revelation are facing tremendous pressure. The empire of Rome, as I've said, is is near the zenith of its power, its might, its glory. We will see that fleshed out in chapters ahead. These disciples live in a context in the province, the Roman province of Asia, where the cult of the emperor particularly uh, is strong, which means that for all of them as members of different trade guilds, we talked about this a little bit when we walked through the letters earlier, that all of them as members, as citizens of a particular city, that there would have been occasions, certainly as, as your guild, there were the patron gods, or, or but at, even for public events, for civic events, when you gathered together, the, the, the false religion in these cities would have dominated, and there would have been this public acclamation of the emperor as Lord and Savior. And so if you were a follower of Jesus and could not uh, join in that acclamation of the emperor as Lord and Savior, you would have been singled out. You would have been identified as different. You, you would have not had the mark of the beast. And so you would have faced great opposition. In fact, the second beast has the power to kill those who don't worship the first beast. So for these believers to refrain, to, to not participate in what dominated their world would have brought great suffering. In fact, if they didn't have the mark of the beast, they couldn't participate in the normal economics of everyday life. They couldn't buy food. There were, there were consequences. There was pain. Like This is where the rubber hit the road. You stand faithfully for Jesus, and it's going to mean pain. And so, tremendous pressure to compromise. Tremendous pressure to, to just jump through a few hoops to throw a little pinch of incense on the altar, to, to say Caesar is Lord and Savior with your fingers crossed. You know, not really mean it. Just kind of got to do it to get along, to, to, to make it through the reality. To stand faithfully for Jesus would mean suffering and death. Remember when we read the letter to the church in Pergamum? Remember we read about uh, the one man in their church who had been put to death because of his faithfulness, Antipas. Martyred because of his faithfulness to Jesus, because of his refusal to compromise. More of that is coming. And the church is under tremendous pressure to compromise. Now, when we think of this mark, the mark of the beast, let me uh, focus our attention there for a moment and ask the question, is this a literal mark? I would contend that the answer is no, that this is metaphorical. See, if you think of the parody again of the the dragon and the two beasts trying to mimic God, a parody of God usurping the place of God, and we think of the grand scope of the drama of Revelation, what did we encounter earlier? The, The people of God received a mark, a seal. They were, they were identified as belonging to the one who sits upon the throne above every other throne and the Lamb. And here, the inhabitants of the earth, those who worship the beast, receive the beast's mark. I, I think that just continues the parody. This isn't talking about a, a literal mark. It is, it is about worshiping of the beast, being identified with the beast. Daryl Johnson writes this. It is, it's not a literal mark, but something real nonetheless. He says this, It is not a tattoo on the forehead 
or on the right hand, nor a microchip embedded under the skin. It is the character of the beast implanted in the soul. We become like whatever it is we worship. That's clear. If you read through the Old Testament prophets, Israel becomes deaf and dumb because they're worshiping idols. Isaiah makes it so clear that are carved out of wood. Idols that cannot see and cannot speak. We become like the idols we worship. The mark of the beast is embedded in the soul as the inhabitants of the earth are deceived and led into false worship of this beast. Why on their hand and forehead? Perhaps alluding to the Jewish phylacteries, you know, those little boxes that they would attach to their forehead and the back of their hand that would have the Shema in it. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They, they would tie it on their hand and on their forehead to remind them of God's law. They, they were to take these commandments I give you today or to be on your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The Jewish people began a tradition of actually doing that, tying them to their foreheads and their hands as this reminder of God's law that was to be always before them. So perhaps this mark on the forehead or the hand is a parody, a mimicking of that. But I think even more than that, what it gets at is the fact that that the forehead represents our thinking and the hand represents our doing. The disciples of Jesus would be tempted to compromise. Just a pinch of incense. Just say the words. You don't have to mean them. Otherwise, there's going to be great hardship. Otherwise, there will be suffering, maybe death. Maybe you will join Antipas in dying. I sometimes wonder, I was talking to a friend and I said this week, as I reflected on this text, I sometimes wonder what is more dangerous and and what, quite frankly, would be more difficult to face. Someone putting a gun to your head and saying, renounce Jesus, or I pull the trigger, or this slow subtle temptation to compromise. The church is under tremendous pressure to compromise. This beast wants to lead the world into the worship of the beast out of the sea. His power to kill. He identifies those who worship the beast and others are left exposed under pressure. What do we do with verse 18? The final verse, this, the number of the beast, 666. There are various suggestions, and I'm not going to take a lot of time to go through them all. One of them, that this is a form of what's called gematria, which is um, using numbers uh, to spell words. In fact, we have examples in, in I think it was Pompeii, some ancient graffiti that was found, where the graffiti said, I love her whose number is 545. So, I love her who's 969. You can take letters of a name and, and figure out a number. And so there are some who think, oh, we got we to figure out the, the 666 actually represents a name. I, I would suggest that that's likely not the best option. I, instead, I, I would contend 
that sometimes we ask the wrong question so we get the wrong answer. I would suggest humbly and open-handedly recognizing that I could be wrong, but I would say that number 666 is a symbol, that it functions like other numbers that we've encountered in the Revelation. Remember, 144,000, we're going to encounter that again next week in chapter 14. 144,000, that's 12,000 times 12,000. That represents God's people, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. That, that numbers symbolize something. That 1,260 days, three and a half years, 42 months, that those are numbers that represent the period in which the church lives between the time of Christ and Christ's return. I would contend that 666 is a symbol. Rabbis thought of the number 6 as a number of incompleteness. Creation was not complete until the seventh day. So number 6 is a number of incompletion. Number 7, a number of completion. Might John be saying that as the beast mimics the Holy Spirit, that he continues to fall short? The unholy trinity wants to be God, wants to usurp God's place in the world, wants the worship of all of humanity, but it falls short that it is false religion. Worship anything other than God and always find things incomplete and wrong. False religion, uh, Michael Wilcock writes, false religion is symbolized by a picture the beast from the earth, and by a number, 666. The number 666 does not mean Nero or Caligula or Rome. It simply means the beast. It simply means false religion. And if you look at the text, John didn't say, work out the meaning of the number. He said, work out the number. Calculate the number. Don't figure out the meaning of the number. Calculate the number. Here's how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message translation of this verse. He says, use your heads, figure out what's going on. And as I think about what does this mean for the original recipients of this, what does this mean for us? We can spend a lot of time trying to figure out 666 stands for who. Is it Ronald Reagan? Is it someone else? Who, who, who is it? Oprah? I, you know, all kinds of suggestions. And I think that leads us astray. I think Wilcock is right. We can ask the wrong question and come up with the wrong answers, but 666 is false religion. It is the religion of this unholy trinity. And so Peterson's words, use your heads, figure out what's going on, are so appropriate. Pay attention to what's going on. The beast is seeking to lead you into false worship. The fourth thing I wanted to do, and just briefly, is spend a moment thinking about the necessary response for us as disciples of Jesus. And I, I begin with just a reminder that the Revelation is, first and foremost, a discipleship manual. It is about showing us, teaching us, how to live faithfully as disciples of Jesus, giving Jesus our allegiance, being faithful to Jesus, not being led astray, not being deceived by the beast from the earth. The, the beast, the false religion, false ideology aims to deceive, aims to lead us from God to worship other things, to worship power, to worship uh, politics, to, to worship anything other than the true God who made us and, and leads us as the church to compromise. To say just a pinch of incense, just, just say these words, otherwise it's going to get really hard and you're going to have to go through stuff. So just a little compromise. 
I read a blog this week, sorry, two weeks ago, by James Emery White, in which he referenced a, uh, a survey, a study done in the States, Pew Research, about uh, attitudes towards sexuality. And I just use this as one example because it's so fitting. It's certainly not the only area of compromise. But it asked a number of questions. Percentage of U.S. adults who said it was acceptable to blank, regardless of whether they would or, or not. And so one question was, uh, sex between unmarried adults in a committed relationship. What that poll revealed was that 33% of men and women who identified themselves as followers of Jesus said it is always acceptable. Another 24% said sometimes it's acceptable. That was just the first question. That, that means 57% of people who identify themselves as followers of Jesus are saying it's either always or sometimes perfectly fine to have sex in a committed relationship apart from God's design for marriage. Now listen, God is not against sex. Sex is God's good gift and a powerful gift, and it's one that he has given to us to be practiced in the context of a committed marriage between one man and one woman to bond them together. To, there is a glorious gift used in the right context, submitting to God's ways. But when I read this, my heart, I just thought, this is the church. This is people who identify themselves as followers of Jesus who are saying, yeah, yeah, it's acceptable. And I could go through other questions. I won't. Now, please understand, uh, Christianity is not about us you know, pulling up our socks and, and cleaning ourselves up and struggling really hard for sexual purity. Okay? Christianity at its heart is about a relationship with Jesus. It is about recognizing our need for His grace and, and being invited into a relationship and growing in our love for Him. And as part of that, choosing to, wanting to honor Him with every area of our life, including our sexuality. The, the reality is, I would contend that we are all sexually broken. This is not about, clean, I'm not beating you with a stick. I'm simply saying, look at how the beast has led the church to compromise. I mean, don't you hear that? 57% of Christians say, yeah, it's always acceptable or sometimes acceptable to violate what God's word has clearly taught about human sexuality. As you hear that, don't you smell sulfur? I mean, this is, this is the beast seeking to lead the church astray. And understand, that's just one area. We can look at every aspect of life. There is an enemy, a dragon, who stands on the shore to wage war against God's people. He's filled with fury, and he seeks to do it through these two agents, political power and deception, false religion, false worship, compromise. Jesus came, the Lamb, the lamb who was slain came and he suffered in our place. He bore the penalty for our sin. He clothes us with his perfection. He invites us into fellowship with the one who made us 
with the only one who can satisfy us, the only one in whom we will find joy. He has come to redeem us, and He has accomplished that all on the cross so that through faith in Jesus, we are brought from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The Christian life, clearly revealed to us through the revelation, is not an easy life, but it is good. And what we see here is that the dragon has been defeated. He's filled with fury. He's, he's lashing out, but he's been defeated. But, but Jesus wants to prepare us. He wants to warn us. He wants to equip us to face what we face. He calls us to faithfulness, to lean into him. And so for all of us, whatever your experience is today, where we recognize compromise in our own lives, we run to the cross and we rest in and we rejoice in his grace. And as we go out into the day, we, we rely on his grace for strength to obey. Not because there are rules that he's given, but because we want to honor God with our whole life. We want to not be ignorant of the enemy's tactics. His desire to destroy us, to lead us astray, to lead us into compromise. Brothers and sisters, that we would so rejoice in Christ that we could, could do that, that we could, we could revel in the grace in which we stand, knowing that we are forgiven and purified and clothed with His perfection, know that we are filled with His Spirit, Know that there's a whole bunch of stuff going on around us, that the enemy is out to destroy us and lead us astray, but that we can stand firm in Christ in the face of this onslaught for His glory and for our joy. Amen.